Uh, we're going to read from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 5, from verses 27 to 39. After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, Follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house, and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. And they said to him, The disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees. But yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, Can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. He told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the, new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins, and it will be spilled. And the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And no one, after drinking old wine, desires new, for he says the old is good. This is the word of the Lord. You know, today we're going to start a new series, uh, and I'm calling it Eating with Jesus. And every year what I try to do is I try to preach something about the life of Jesus or the teachings of Jesus uh, from the gospel narratives. And if you, were, uh, if you participated during the season of Lent, one of the things that we tried to do as a church is we tried to read through the Gospel of Luke. And I don't know if you realize, but as you were reading through the Gospel of Luke, but uh, Jesus spends a lot of time eating. Uh, he spends a lot of time ha- having meals with people. And so we, we just finished this vision series talking about uh, building bridges as a church. And one of the things that we talked about is hospitality uh, as an important way to do that. And if you think about it, uh, in terms of Jesus' ministries, as, as he shared meals with a lot of people, uh, a lot of important conversations, a lot of uh, important teachings took place over a meal. And so I do want to encourage you to just continually share meals with people because uh, you might find that it'll be one of the most important times in your life. You know, when we eat, sometimes we, we have fun and we joke around, but there are times where we really share and pour out our hearts and we share life together and we... Uh, you know, we talk about things together. We talk about the present, the future, our struggles. And uh, a lot of times it's through meals that friendships are forged. It's, it's through meals that even romantic relationships begin. What do you do when you go on a first date? Typically you have a meal. You go out to a restaurant. Most of the time you eat. But if you notice in our modern society, I think we've picked up some maybe some bad habits that I think is due to some technological advances because you know, I remember a time where it was a little bit strange and a little bit uncomfortable to eat by yourself. Uh, I remember times in like high school going into a school cafeteria or even in college going into the dining hall and uh, you didn't really want to eat by yourself because you felt like uh, you'd be a loser. But these days, you know, with the with smartphones, uh, it's not so bad to eat by yourself. And in some ways, maybe it's even preferable to eat by yourself. You can kind of do what you want. You can uh, browse the internet. You can play games on your phone. So uh, if you go out to lunch for New York, I'm going to guess that many of you, maybe you eat by yourself. Maybe you just pick up food and go back to your office cubicle. Uh, maybe, uh, you know, when I go out to lunch and I, I look around, a lot, a lot of people are they have their headphones on and they're looking at their phone and they're just eating lunch by themselves. They want to get it over with, go quick, so that they can get back to life and what whatever they're doing. And that's not necessarily a bad thing, of course, but 
if we do that all the time and if we neglect to just share meals with people in general, uh, we might be missing out on some very important moments in life, some potentially life-changing moments in life, some important, potentially important relationships in our life. And I know all of us are very busy to varying degrees. We all have stuff to do. But the one thing that we can all do, I think, is we can eat and we can share meals with people as we eat. And no matter how old you are, uh, no matter how busy you are, you always have to eat. And so that's something that we can, I think, always do. It's a very universal and practical way that we can actively love and serve people. And one of the ways in which Jesus loved and served people, one of the ways in which Jesus ministered to people was he ate with them. He shared a meal with them. And so in the Gospel of Luke, in particular, uh, there's a lot of instances in which Jesus shares a meal with a variety of people. And so for the next eight weeks, we're going to look at each of those instances in which Jesus eats with people. And we're going to see some of the things that he teaches, some of the things that he says, some of the things that he does through these meals. Now, <clears throat> some of the people uh, that I've come across who, who talk about Jesus, I think, uh, oftentimes have a very incomplete picture of who Jesus actually is. And I think in America, especially, the, the picture that people have of Jesus when they imagine Jesus is usually this superficial caricature based on these small snippets of what the Bible says. And I often hear people say things like, you know, Jesus is somebody who taught us to care for the poor and to love neighbor. And Jesus said things like, do not judge lest you be judged. And those things are, of course, true. But that's not everything that Jesus said. And there's a lot of things that Jesus said in the Bible that are actually very difficult and very hard. There are a lot of things that Jesus did that are very controversial. And so the, one of the reasons why I want to, uh, every year, just kind of look at the life of Jesus is, is to reorient our understanding of maybe who Jesus is. And if, if you're not a believer, if you're not familiar with the Christian faith, then maybe for the first time see aspects of Jesus that aren't usually talked about in popular culture. Uh, I shared this story, I think, a while ago, but... You know, I remember I was on the subway, and uh, as I was on the subway, there was this uh, group of guys that got onto the train, and they looked like they were ready to party that night and, and go to a club. And, I, you know, they were, like, right next to me, so I was just overhearing their conversation and what they were talking about. And apparently one of the guys from that group uh, had just gotten married, and uh, he was like, you know, I'm going to be, uh, I'm gonna try to hook up with the most beautiful girl tonight. And one of his friends was like, yo, that's messed up. You just got married. Like, what are you talking about? And he responded, he said, hey, don't judge me. Jesus doesn't judge. And, uh, you know, I, I was very tempted. I was like, I wanted to correct him and say, that's not true, <laughs> right? That's actually not true. Jesus is probably the only one who, who judges, and his judgment is probably the only one that we, we should really care about. But at the moment, he probably didn't care about having a theological dialogue, so I, I let it go. But it's just kind of an example, I think, of maybe how people easily uh, hear things in culture and uh, just create this caricature of Jesus is or even sometimes distort who Jesus is. And it's kind of like basing your entire view of a person based on a couple tweets, right, which is what people do in our culture, uh, which usually doesn't give a very accurate picture of the entire person. And so today, uh, we're going to start, and we're going to look at this meal in which Jesus, he shares uh, a meal with, uh, or he goes to this tax collector's house named Levi. And as I said, Jesus' teaching usually accompanies a meal, which we're going to look at. But in this particular case, the meal itself is also significant because of who he is sharing that meal with. And therefore, we not only learn something about Jesus through what he teaches, but we actually learn something about Jesus' mission and purpose through the meal itself and through whom he is sharing this meal. So we'll look at both today. We'll look at the significance of the meal 
and the significance of his teaching. The first thing this passage tells us is that Jesus, he sees this tax collector named Levi, and he says to him, follow me. And Levi leaves everything and follows Jesus. And we don't have any details of that conversation. We don't have any more details about this encounter. But I think it, what it's meant to do is it's meant to set up this significant scene that's going to take place next, in which Levi invites Jesus to his house, and he makes this great feast. And at this great feast, a lot of Levi's friends are there, which are fellow tax collectors. So uh, Jesus comes to Levi's house, and he shares a meal not only with Levi the tax collector, but he also shares a meal with other tax collectors. Now, tax collectors, uh, these tax collectors are not like the version of our, our, our IRS. And uh, by now, I imagine many of you uh, may have filed your taxes. I think if you haven't, you should get to it, right? And uh, maybe you know at this point how much you uh, owed or how much you paid in taxes uh, from your tax return. And you might not like how much you had to pay in your tax return. But chances are you probably don't despise people who work for the IRS, right? Uh, but in those days, Jewish people, they despised tax collectors. They hated tax collectors. Why? Well, Judea was under Roman control, and a common practice of the Roman Empire was they would levy these really high taxes uh, to those that they've colonized in order to, to cripple them. And it was a way to really ensure that these people, this uh, that these people remained under their control. And so for a Jewish person, a Roman tax wasn't simply just a tax that you pay to the government to help the common good and to help society. But for them, it was a symbol of Roman conquest. That's part of the reason why this question of the legal legality of paying taxes to Caesar came up. It wasn't about the legal legality of paying taxes in general, but it was about the use of taxes as a means of oppressing the people of God. And therefore, when a Jewish person became a tax collector... They were seen as traitors. They were seen as people who sold out their people, sold out their community, sold out the dreams of the people of Israel to be this prosperous nation once again. Tax collectors were like the people who said, you know, if you can't beat them, well, might as well join them, might as well profit off of it, might as well benefit. And so Jew Jewish people saw tax collectors as these very disloyal, very greedy traitors not helping the people of God at all, but actually hurting them. Now, these are the kind of people that Jesus now, he sits down with and he has a meal with. And we say, well, what's, why is that such a big deal? It's because in the ancient world, when you eat with somebody, it's, it's understood as you are welcoming them or you're befriending them. And uh, I think that some of that even translates in modern culture. Now, I say this because we live in New York. And uh, in, in New York in general, I think, has a very negative view of uh, President Trump. And so if you fall into that category, uh, I want you to imagine, what if you, you saw somebody that you had this high respect for sitting down and having a meal with President Trump? If you're a Christian, uh, imagine this. What if you saw somebody like Tim Keller having a meal with President Trump? What would you think? Uh, how would that make you feel? And you might say, why in the world is this person eating with President Trump? Why? Well, that's, that's how the Pharisees and the scribes would have felt. They're saying, hey, these tax collectors, they're, they're not good for our people. They're not good for uh, our vision of what we think our nation should be. Why is Jesus sitting with these people? And that's what they ask in verse 30. Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And what they're really asking, how do you associate with such despicable people? 
Don't you know that these tax collectors are part of the problem in terms of what our vision is for the people of Israel? Jesus, what are you doing? And how does Jesus respond here? He says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. I think that's a key statement here in terms of understanding what Jesus is trying to get across, in terms of his purpose and in terms of his mission. And by using a physician metaphor, Jesus is saying this, we, we are sick. Right? We are all sick people. That's, that's the problem of sin. Sin makes us sick, and therefore we need a physician to heal us. But there are two kinds of sick people in the world. There is a kind of sick people who they know that they're sick, and there are the kind of sick people who have no idea that they're sick. And since the first kind of person knows that they're sick, then they're probably going to try to see a doctor, go to a hospital to try to get better. Second kind of person who goes through life thinking that everything is fine and that they're not sick will never try to seek healing through a physician. And if you think about it, what is the more dangerous position to be in? The more dangerous person position to be in is that second person. To think that everything is fine, but to really be sick, and to think nothing is actually wrong with you. You know, kind of a side note, I, I probably fall into the second category. I, I know I have high cholesterol, but I don't want to get a physical because I don't want to be reminded that I have high cholesterol. <laughs> probably not good for me. <clears throat> you know, many years ago, um, you know, there, there was somebody I knew, and uh, I went to college with him, and I went to church with him, and I served with him in church on, on the worship team. Uh, <clears throat> this, this guy, he, um, you know, he tragically died at a very young age. He was in his early 20s, and it was, just a, it was a complete shock to everybody. And the way he died is, uh, you know, he fell off a balcony, essentially. But when he fell, you know, he didn't die right away. Uh, but from what I heard is after he fell, he actually looked he, like he was okay. He looked like he was fine. But what was really happening was he was bleeding internally, and eventually because of that, he lost too much blood, and that's how he died. You know, that, that scared me. Uh, and anytime, you know, from that point, anytime anybody falls from like a high height, I always think about internal bleeding. Uh, I was at this retreat, and uh, this college student was like climbing this like cliff, and he fell. And the first thing I thought was, oh, man. Internal bleeding. We got to call an ambulance, and it's uh, <clears throat> uh, you know, it's scary because the fact that someone could look so healthy and so fine on the outside, and yet be seriously injured on the inside, uh, it's a very frightening thought, is it not? And uh, even though it may have looked worse, it probably would have been better if, uh, when he fell, there was some sign that he needed immediate medical attention. If he was like bleeding profusely or something like that, that probably would have been better. At least you know something's wrong. You see, the problem with the Pharisees and uh, the other Jewish leaders is they didn't think they were sick. Externally, everything looked fine. They were studying scripture. They were fasting on the important Jewish holidays. They were tithing. They were doing everything that a good Jewish person is supposed to be doing. And they didn't realize that they were sick. They didn't realize that they were bleeding internally, and therefore they didn't realize they needed a physician to heal them. But in the Gospels, who are the ones who actually realize that they're sick? Who are the ones who realize that they need a physician? It's the people who are classified as quote-unquote sinners. Uh, it's the tax collectors. It's the lepers. It's the adulterous woman. 
That's why even though they seem like they are in the worst place externally speaking, they're actually in a great spiritual place because at least they know that they're sick. At least they know they need someone to heal them and they need a physician. Conversely, these Pharisees, even though everything looks great on the outside, they are probably in a worse position spiritually speaking because they don't realize they are sick. You know, when we read about the Pharisees, maybe we have a tendency to demonize them a little bit and say, oh, these Pharisees are messed up people. Uh, but when we demonize people, the problem is we, we fail to understand them and we fail to see that we can easily be just like them because we all have self-righteousness in our hearts, right? We all want to present ourselves as very put together on the outside, but maybe on the inside we're, we're very sick. Maybe on the inside we have all of these issues. See, self-righteousness is a disease, I think, that we have, and we can actually be very oblivious to it. Now, how do you know if you have self-righteousness in your heart? I think one of the ways that you know is if you ever feel like or think that you are a better person than somebody else, or if you're better than a, a group of people, uh, that's probably a good sign that you have self-righteousness in your heart. You know, the self-righteous Christian is very easy to spot. Uh, they're the type of person who thinks they're better because they go to church, because they serve, because they live, quote-unquote, a morally good life. That's you. Do you realize that the only reason you are a, a believer or a Christian in the first place is not because you're so good? It's not because you're more enlightened? It's not because you live a morally better life? but it's simply because God has shown you grace and God has shown you mercy. But, you know, there are other versions of self-righteousness as well. It's, it's like the person who champions social justice will look at those who aren't really passionate about things like ending sex trafficking and part, uh, poverty. Uh, sometimes I think there's a self-righteousness uh, amongst minorities in pointing out white privilege. And, of course, that's the right thing to do, and we should point out injustices. But oftentimes... We like to do it in a way that's very self-righteous and saying, I'm better than you, right? Because I, I am not like you, I am better than you. And it doesn't come from a place of love. You know you know where I can be self-righteous? Do you want to know? Should I tell you? <laughs> I'll tell you. Uh, I think one of the ways that I can be self-righteous is, uh, you know, I'm a pastor, and uh, I, this, is, this is not a huge church. This is uh, probably a, a small church. I can actually be very self-righteous about the fact that I'm a pastor of a small church. You say, how so? I say, well, look, I'm not this big author. I'm not on a speaking circuit. I'm not, uh, you know, I, there's no way I could have sold out because the church is small and I'm not trying to make the church big and market and brand and all that stuff. And guess what? What am I doing? I think I'm better than uh, those pastors who have these platforms and are speaking at conferences and have these huge churches and writing books. It's disgusting, is it? Is it not? Self-righteousness is horrible. It's, it's clogging the arteries of our hearts, and in a very subtle way, it's killing us from the inside. What are you self-righteous about? Who do you think you're better than? You see, we are all sick, and we need a physician. You see, Jesus also teaches us something important at this meal, aside from the fact that we're all sick and we need a physician, and he came uh, to heal. But he also uh, tells us something new, and he responds to this question about fasting from the Pharisees with this parable. And he says, No one tears a new garment and puts it on old wine. No one puts new wine into old wineskins. And what, what is he basically talking about here? He's saying this. He's saying, There is a new age that has come with my arrival. 
Uh, you know, last week I said that we tend to like new things, but actually that's not true for everyone because there are people who like old things and old ways and don't want things to change. There are ki the kind of people who uh, like tradition and like the status quo and any kind of change to that makes them feel uncomfortable. You know, if someone were to introduce a big change to a community or to a company, some people may be excited, but there are going to be those people who are certainly going to be afraid of change and say, why are we doing this? Jesus here, when he comes, uh, he's, he's saying something very significant, and he is saying that I have come with this new kingdom program. I have this new kingdom agenda. Uh, I have come to bring the new, and uh, the old way of things, it doesn't fit into this new program. You know, I was reading this Bible scholar, and uh, he had this illustration, and he said, if you think about technology, technology is changing so rapidly, and uh, he's an older man, so he says, you know, it's really hard for me to adapt to the changes. And uh, at, at, a, at one point, I learned how to use, like, a certain operating system, and I learned how to use the word processor, and I, I, I learned to use a certain software in a certain way. And all of a sudden, there's an upgrade, and everything completely changes, and you kind of have to just relearn everything over and over again. And he would say, you know, that's, that's especially frustrating to somebody like him because he was perfectly happy with the way things worked before, with the old way. He didn't like when something new came. He didn't want to adjust to something new. And that's kind of the dilemma that the Pharisees and other religious leaders have here, their own understanding of what God was going to do, their own understanding of what God was supposed to do in God's kingdom program through the coming of the Messiah, was make Israel great again. Right? Make, that's very Trumpian, right? Make <laughs> Israel great again. Make Israel into a great kingdom, a great political kingdom. Make Israel like the days as it was under King David. And what they're trying to do is they're trying to fit Jesus' arrival and Jesus' new paradigm, Jesus' new program, into their own categories of what they think Jesus should be doing. But the point of the parable is this. You can't do that. You can't do that. Jesus comes with something entirely new, and you have to accept it in its entirety, or you reject it in its entirety. And by the way, we, we do often do this when we refer to Jesus and talk about Jesus, right? Uh, we try to make Jesus fit into our own categories. You know, we have a corporate prayer that we pray from time to time that confesses that we often make God reflect our desires, our image, instead of our desires conforming to his desires and us conforming to his image. Uh, we pray that because it's a very real temptation for all of us. You know, if you're the conservative type, then you want Jesus to reflect conservative values. If you're the progressive type, then maybe you want Jesus to reflect progressive values. But here's the thing. Jesus doesn't really fit into our categories, nor is he meant to fit into our categories, but it's supposed to be the other way around. Uh, he is the one who's supposed to create the categories. We are the one who are supposed to fit into his categories. And therefore, Jesus doesn't always say and act and do uh, what we might expect him to do. And sometimes we have a hard time understanding it. Sometimes we have a hard time accepting it. But Jesus is the one who, who lays out the expectations. He's the one who comes and brings anew, and we are supposed to fit into his program, his kingdom program. But you see, if we are compartmentalizing Jesus and uh, we're only allowing him to speak and have authority uh, over us when we actually agree with him, then we're not really following the real Jesus. Uh, if you see something that Jesus says and your response is, you know, I don't like that, and the God that I would worship would not say that or would not do that or would not believe that, then you're not following the real God. You're not worshiping the real God. More likely it's a caricature of God that you created in your own image, 
And when you reduce God to this caricature created in your own image, that God has no power at all in your life. And that's the problem here with these religious leaders in Jesus' day is that they could not see or accept that this new kingdom paradigm that Jesus is announcing to them was something that they had to conform to. They had their own expectations for the Messiah. They had their own plans. They had their own idea of who God was and what he was supposed to be doing. And to them, the climax of God's plan is to establish Israel as a great nation once again. You see, God actually had a different plan. God actually had a better plan. And it was better than the Pharisees' vision. It was better than the religious leaders' vision. It's, it's even better than the American dream. It's even better than what you individually and personally think is going to be the most glorious life here on this earth. What is God's plan? We get a glimpse of it at this meal. After the Pharisees ask Jesus about fasting, Jesus says, Can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. And essentially what Jesus is saying here is, Now is, is, a, is not the time to fast. Now is the time to feast. Now is the time to rejoice because the bridegroom is here. You know, if, you, if you've ever seen those viral videos of when members of the military, they, they come back and they surprise their family at home, and it's like really touching, it's very powerful, uh, and you see how much joy is uh, with the family because they're, you know, their husband, wife, brother, whatever it might be, they're back with them, and they're just really happy. And it wouldn't be right if that family said, you're back, you're here, now is the time we should fast. Right? That just doesn't make sense. Now is the occasion to feast. But then maybe one day this military member is going to have to return uh, to their service term and is going to have to leave again for maybe six months to a year. And that time will come, and during that time, you don't feast anymore until they come back. Right? That's kind of what Jesus is saying here. He's saying, the bridegroom is here. Now is the time to feast. Now is not the time to fast. But... There will be a time to fast because I will not always be here. The bridegroom will not always be here. There will be a time where I will have to leave again. There will be a time when the physician himself will leave because he himself is sick. That's what the cross is all about. That's what the gospel is all about. That's the core central message of what Christianity is about. That Jesus, he would become sick so that we might be healed. That he would become sin itself so that we might become the righteous of God. That his body would be like the old garment or the old wineskin and that his body would have to be broken and torn in two in order to make way for the new. There would be a time of fasting and mourning, but a time of feasting will come again. Just like that military service member who might return once again, this time permanently, and return to their family once again. Jesus will come again, and there will be a time of feasting once again. You know, last week we celebrated Easter. Easter is a celebration of the resurrection. Uh, it's a celebration of how all things will be made new in light of the resurrection, uh, how there will be a new heaven and a new earth, if you read the book of Revelation in Revelation 19, there's actually also a picture of a feast. It's a picture of a wedding banquet. There will be a time of feasting at this heavenly bank banquet. 
And do you know who will be sitting at that banquet table? It's going to be the leper, the tax collector, the adulterous woman, the thief next to Jesus who hung upon a cross. It is going to be the people who realized they needed a physician to heal them. The very ones who realized that they were sick, that they had a sickness, and that they needed someone to heal them. That is who will be invited to this heavenly banquet. Jesus' guests will be those who are sick, broken, poor, needy. Simple question for us today. Is that you? Do you realize that's you? Does that characterize you? Do we know we're broken and sick? Do we know we need a physician to help us and to heal us? I pray that we do. Let's pray together.